Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books in History. My name is Christine Lamberson, and I'll be your host today. Um, today, I'll be speaking with Nicholas Trajano Molnar, who is an assistant professor of history at the Community College of Philadelphia and the Digital Humanities Officer of the Immigration and Ethnic History Society. We'll be speaking today about his book, American Mestizos, the Philippines and the Malleability of Race, 1898 to 1961. And this book came out in 2017 with the University of Missouri Press. Hi, Nick. Welcome. Hi, Christine. Glad to be here. So thanks for joining us, Nick. To get started, can you tell us just a little bit about how you became interested in being a historian? Sure. Um, Originally, I had gone to uh, Rutgers University, and as I was there, I began studying history. I I didn't have the intent to become a historian. I really fell into it with some encouragement from my advisors. Initially, I really wanted to be a secondary school teacher. I, I had always liked to, I always thought it was a, um, a potentially interesting profession to get into. And uh, then during my undergraduate years, the end of my undergraduate studies, I worked very closely with a professor, John Chambers, who encouraged me to do historical research. And I, that ended up becoming a larger project about military technology. And he encouraged me to you know, uh, check out graduate school. And, and at that point, I really had no idea what graduate school was. Um, that's how far, you know, uh, uh, away from being a historian I was. Uh, you know, I actually asked him, oh, what, what's, a, what's a doctorate degree? What's a master's degree? You know, not, not unlike some of the students where I teach who ask me, you know, just the other day, they asked me, you know, what's sociology? What's psychology? It's very innocent questions, but um, you know, you, you have to learn at some point. So then that's when I became interested in the field of history. But ironically, I still ended up at a primarily teaching institution. So it really is the best of both worlds. And how did you become interested in this particular topic once you got to graduate school and beyond? Sure. 
in terms of this particular topic, the American Mestias in the Philippines, I really fell into the topic because I had studied 20th century history uh, in my graduate studies, immigration history in particular. And I was looking in particular at immigration laws in the 1950s related to Asia. And there were quite a few. Uh, some were related to transnational adoption. Uh, tr some were related to the Vietnam War. Um, but and, – and in the process of studying these, I came across this idea, um, uh, th this concept that uh, – of these mixed-race children – um, who are being adopted. And, and, and many folks do this type of work. But uh, at some point along in my studies of transnational adoption and these immigration laws, I said, why is there something missing? There seemed to be something missing because you had uh, children from Japan, you had children from Korea, you had children from Vietnam, you had children from Thailand. And these were relatively more recent uh, places that the United States used as military bases in the Cold War and that sort of thing after World War II. And I just thought to myself, I said, well, wasn't there a 50-year American military presence in the Philippines? And there had to have been something like that going on. If, if within a decade you have this social issue emerging in these other countries. So that's really what led me to look to the topic. And it was wide open. No one had ever done this type of work before. So it was really exciting as a historian just to be able to go through these archives. And, you know, the terminology was completely different, too. That, that was another thing. Um, originally, I was looking at a group of folks called the Amer-Asians. Uh, and when I went to uh, study the Philippines, obviously, they didn't call them that. Uh, they were called in the Philippine context, the American Mestizo. So that's how I came uh, to the topic. And so how did you kind of get started with your research? You started looking through these archives. You went to um, the Philippines. What, what did you find out about these folks initially? One of the things that just, – just before I get into that, one of the things that happened was um, I, I started looking closely at these immigration laws. And um, I started looking at um, – I, I got a really good pointer – on the direction to go from uh, one, an oral history I conducted with someone at um, – you may not be familiar with this agency. It's called Pearl Buck International. It's a transnational adoption agency. I'm located in New Jersey, and uh, they're over in Pennsylvania, so uh, not too far away. And I ended up talking to the wife of a congressman uh, who was trying to push through some of these uh, immigration laws to help these children. And – you know, help is a term that's relative. A lot of people come to political issues from different angles. Some some people feel embarrassed that this kind of abandonment of children by American servicemen were happening. Some felt it was a humanitarian issue. Uh, some felt it was, you know, whole groups of people were coming to this particular issue. And what was clear was how the Philippines was purposely left out of uh, this type of conversation, this immigration conversation, because the fear of the Congress was actually if they pass new immigration laws for, that give uh, that give preference to mixed race children, that millions of people from the Philippines wouldn't be able to claim that. So in the 80s, it's just like today, um, people are concerned with immigration, 
And it's really interesting the permutations that, that come out in immigration law. Now, when I started studying the Philippines, because it was wide open, I had to become familiar with the terminology and I had to become familiar with the racial structure of the Philippines. So uh, one of the things that emerged before the American Mestizos, I became familiar with uh, just a racial structure in the Philippines, which is which is quite fascinating. It's a combination of a lot of people say, oh, well, the Philippines is in Asia, so they're Asian. But but really, if you think about it, the Philippines was colonized for hundreds of years by uh, Spain. There's more Spanish influence there than in some of the Latin American countries um, in uh, North and South America. So it's just an interesting thing, the way we think about race. Um, but I had to study the Spanish racial structure. And what's interesting in the Philippines is that the Spanish racial structure was impacted not just by the Filipinos, who at that time were called the Indios, I-N-D-I-O-S, but it was influenced by significant waves of Chinese migration. So you really get this really interesting racial dynamic that's, that's really unique um, in terms of, uh, in terms of a, a lot of the way we think about uh, countries and race because it's influenced by the Spanish racial structure as well as Chinese migration. So what happened there is the first groups that emerge are the Spanish mestizos. Um, the second group that emerges, and these become actually codified uh, racial categories in tax law and in the census. Uh, the second group is the Chinese mestizos. So when the Americans come, they fall into this category. They are called American mestizos, and they fall into a racial schema that has completely different rules uh, than those in the United States. So, so before I got into the research, I had to grasp my, I had to handle that, um, which was exciting because it was totally different than than what I had expected. Um, or had studied before. So for a minute, before we um, go back to talking a little bit about your research, it might be useful, just in case people don't know this history very well, for you to just give us a quick overview of the relationship between the United States and the Philippines, or more precisely, uh, when the United States shows up and why they're showing up there. Sure. Uh, very briefly, you have the race for empire at the turn of the 20th century. And, uh, you know, it's just like everyone wants to get their hand in the game. At what the biggest prize, of course, is China. And when the Spanish-American War breaks out, uh, it just so happens that Spain has a series of colonies, uh, one of them particularly close to China, the Philippines. Um, you know, what's interesting is that the Spanish-American War, the first operations that occur are in the Philippines. The fleet, the American fleet sails from Hong Kong to capture Manila. And with this new Navy that they've built, um, they destroyed the Spanish Navy um, there. So the first naval operations of the Spanish American, the first operations of the Spanish American war are in the Philippines. Uh, very telling. Uh, there, there's a bigger prize and it's China. Uh, after the Spanish American war takes place, uh, imagine if, Imagine if there was a war the United States was involved in, and but really six months later there was a secret war the United States became involved in that that really required half of the American army to be deployed 
thousands of miles away. And that's what happened in the Philippines because after the Spanish-American War um, officially ended with treaties and you know, uh, as uh, formally, the Philippine-American War raged on. But really there was a, a media blackout for a lot of it uh, because the government didn't want – <laughs> American citizens to know there was a war going on and censorship was taking place and that sort of thing. Pretty crazy. But yeah, half the American army was deployed there uh, because uh, what they called the Philippine insurrection broke out. Filipino nationalists were hoping that when the Americans came, uh, they would give them the chance to self-govern. But it was decided in a vote that they would not be given self-government. They would become colonies of the United States. Um, so that's how the United States got involved there. And when you deploy half your army to uh, a place thousands of miles away, uh, the natural result throughout history is um, soldiers having sex with civilians. And you have such a large scale emergence nine months later of, of, of these children. It's almost laughable. This observers at the time. It's almost laughable, and it's they're embarrassed by it because this nation that's supposed to be fighting for all these ideals for democracy in the world—that's what they say. Um, but really, they're trying to put down a guerrilla campaign uh, in the Philippines. So that's when the long-term involvement begins, and that involvement lasts for fifty years. It takes World War II to end that involvement. It takes the Great Depression to end that involvement. But America is perfectly fine having a colony in the Pacific many thousands of miles away uh, for many decades. So your book does a nice job of explaining how the racial structure in the United States, which is, of course, quite binary, our historical definitions of race, um, binary between black and white, is very different from the structure that was in the Philippines, which you've already told us a little bit about. So then you have these children who are born and they live in the Philippines. How are U.S. officials responding to this? How is this influencing um, their policy? And and how is that Filipino um, racial structure shaping how American officials are thinking about these children? Sure. It's, this is such a fascinating dynamic because um, what a lot of people don't realize is that is the way colonies actually work. Like colonies actually work with very little people from the colonizer. Like the popula- the the civilian population in the Philippines is never more than 8,000 Americans. And that's its peak. So think about that. 8,000 Americans and millions and millions of Filipinos. How does a colonizer rule? They rule uh, through co-opting uh, local officials and local governments. Um, so now... The Americans always had this numbers problem in the Philippines. Um, and if you think about it, you have 8,000 folks, just roughly. Uh, the numbers are – specific numbers are in the book. Um, you know, Those are all drawn from the Philippine censuses. Um, most people have never seen an American during these times of uh, the years of empire, the days of empire as they call it at the time. Um, so Americans have this issue of actually ruling the Philippines. And they don't trust Filipinos because, quite frankly, they're racist. They think Filipinos are our little brown brothers. Um, they think that they are incapable of self-government. Now, along come these American mestizos. And they are seen as a potential proxy. 
Now, what's funny is that the Americans, they're the ones who cry racism um, on the American mestizos because when they look at the racial structure of the Philippines, the people who are in government, the people who are at the top of the business community, they're all mestizos. They're Spanish mestizos and Chinese mestizos. And the wealth that was created centuries ago, it was passed down through generations. And the people of wealth, of course, they have the means to run for politics. They have the means to uh, do all the sorts of things that come with wealth. By the time the Americans come, these mestizos are in positions of power. Now, when the Americans come, they have all these mestizos too. And they're all poor. They're all destitute. Why? Because essentially many of these children have been abandoned in the Philippines. They're orphans. So now this now, now that doesn't say that everyone is an orphan because – this is one of the common problems of the American Guardian Association. They're this social organization there. They think every mestizo is an orphan. Every mestizo is destitute. And every mestizo is, is being uh, subjugated by the Filipinos. But that's just not true. But that idea is still there. And when Americans look at the mestizos, what they see is abandoned children. And they think that they're in that position because they're not being accepted in society. And this is this this makes the American officials concerned because if Anglo-Saxon blood gives natural superiority, if these people are supposed to be better, shouldn't they be in the leadership positions in government and business? Shouldn't they, by just their racial aptitude of having Anglo-Saxon blood, shouldn't they be in these positions of power? So this becomes a social cause. Because for America, it's an embarrassment because a lot of the uh, agenda that's pushed forward is that, well, Anglo-Saxon blood makes the white races superior. But in the Philippines, Anglo-Saxon blood means nothing. It doesn't naturally bring you to a position. So the American government tries to make these children into proxies because they think that, well, by virtue of their blood, they will be pro-American which is very kind of simplistic, um, not really understanding that these children are raised as Filipinos. They're raised in Filipino families by their mothers, Filipinas. Um, but they just think that, well, the power of race is too strong and that, well, they should have the rightful place in society. Now, that's, that's the American side. I can go into the Filipino perspective. Of yeah, let's, let's hear a little bit about how they see things. Now, the Filipino perspective is that... The politics of the Philippines at the time is that the concept of the Filipino itself is a very fractured concept. They're trying to make a nation in the Philippines with people who speak different languages. Uh, in the middle regions of the Philippines, they speak Cebuano. In the northern regions and other regions, uh, they speak Tagalog. Many people speak Spanish. Uh, there's a large Muslim population in the southern Philippines. They're trying to make a nation and anything that could divide this nation on issues of race, they're trying to, um, you know, it, it's their goal to not have it be divisive. They see the American mestizos as a divisive issue. They see the formation of a racial category of American mestizos as a problem. That's a political issue on the ground. Filipinos, they see them as Filipinos because in the Filipino racial structure, now I'm not saying that it is – I'm not trying to say that it operates 
in a way that's less racist than the American way, because there are certain there there, there are certain um, uh, things in the Filipino racial structure. For example, they in Philippine history, Chinese have always been ethnic Chinese have always been targeted at certain points in history where there are actually massacres of them. So you can't and and of course the Muslim population in the south. Um, the same thing happens. They try to colonize the southern Philippines with Christians. So, but in the Philippine racial structure, um, there is more room for people of mixed blood to be seen as Filipino, as opposed to in the American racial structure, which is primarily operates by the one drop rule because of that history of race slavery in the United States, it, it of course operates in a different way. So the Filipinos see the American mestizos as one. Uh, Filipinos. Uh, they also see them as uh, potential uh, parts of the Philippine nation when it's constructed. And during the American colonial period, the Philippine nation is being constructed by Philippine politicians. So it's really interesting how children play into the politics, uh, the great game of politics at this time. And the American mestizos are really a theoretical problem. There's only there's never more than a couple thousand of them, and yet so much, so much ink is shed on paper writing about this theoretical race issue. One thing the Americans and the Filipinos I can observe that they have in common: they're all obsessed with race. Everyone's obsessed with race, and it materializes in different ways. So there is this huge argument that you talk about going on, or argument may not be quite the right word, but there's a whole variety of different groups of people who are invested in different types of definitions for these children. Um, and I want to talk a little bit more about how that's playing out in, in terms of policy and um, their lives. But I thought we might talk a little bit about a few specific uh, what we may call cases or people um, that you talk about. Your book talks about um, a number of different individuals and groups who are invested in this definition, just to kind of give everyone a feel of what sorts of um, stories and what sorts of interests different parties have in this question. Um, so I was wondering if you might talk a little bit more about the AGA, which you've already mentioned, and what they're doing and why they are invested in this question. Sure. Um, so the AGA is the American Guardian Association. And if you think about just the name of the organization, the American Guardian Association, um, you know, it's very clear this is a progressive, you know, it, it, this is a progressive era organization, right? The, the whole idea that you can form an organization Look to the government to solve a problem, a perceived social problem. That's straight out of the American progressive era. So these expatriates who come to the Philippines, they, they, they still have the same beliefs. Society can be fixed. We should look to the government to do it. And this is when the American Guardian Association is formed. Uh, Leonard Wood is – he's kind of forgotten in history. Um, he was – he almost became president of the United States. Um, but he he lost a Republican nomination. Um, well, he's a threat. He he's a political outsider. Um, he uh, he wants to be a prominent politician. Um, and the Republican Party, after he loses the nomination, 
And in the first couple ballots, he's actually ahead of everyone. But when the dust settles, they come up with, an, with um, you know, another candidate who eventually wins the presidency. Well, good old Leonard Wood, former general, former best bud of uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Well, what do they do? They promote him and they promote him out of the United States. They send him to be governor general of the Philippines, which is basically the place where you send every official that you don't want in the United States. The American Guardian Association looks to Leonard Wood um, to try to solve this perceived social problem. And Leonard Wood is all about solving this social problem. He thinks the American mestizo issue, they, he in particular thinks they can be cultivated into future leaders to co-opt the Philippine independence movement and keep the Philippines as part of the United States. Um, so this is the type of thing that goes into the American Guardian Association. Um, this, this type of belief that American blood is superior, it should have a certain status, they should not be destitute, it's an embarrassment when they are. Now, in the American Guardian Association, though, there's a couple permutations of these views. They, just like any progressive or, era organization, you have a coalition of folks. So you have the humanitarians. There's no doubt about that. The people who just don't like to see abandoned children. The people who think that all children of the world should be fed and clothed. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But in this coalition... You have also these outright racists, who I would classify Leonard Wood as one of them. You also have this kind of subtle racism that's taking place. Uh, I always found studying the dynamics of the American Guardian Association so fascinating because it seems to me they do a lot more debating about race than actually doing things about the social issue they were created to try to rectify. But so, for example, uh, I always thought this was telling. There's always this dialogue in the American Guardian Association about who is an American mestizo. And what I came to find was that they were they have a very specific definition of what an American was in the first place. This was this was unexpected to me. I, I never thought I would be studying this, but it became clear when they were referring to American mestizos. They were referring to white people. They were referring to – they see them as white, and they see American – to them, American is a synonym for white people because when you go, you have to realize in the Philippines, the American army is deployed. There's thousands of black servicemen in the Philippines. There's African-Americans in the Philippines, and the American Guardian Association just ignores them. They don't even think they're American. It's so fascinating. They call them all well, the Negroes and all the other, um, you know, all the other things uh, white Americans at the time call them, but they don't call them American. They call them the Negroes. They call them the separate race. They don't call the children of African American uh, fathers and Filipino mothers American mestizos. They're not that. Those children are Filipino. So it's just so fascinating. The, the dynamics of the American Guardian Association, not only are they trying to figure out what an American mestizo is, but they're trying to figure out what an American in the Philippines is. And they don't come to an agreement. And it's so fascinating, too, because fast forward, um, fast forward to the 1950s, the American Guardian Association itself realizes that they need to change the definition of what an American mestizo is. And they actually change the definition in their bylaws. To say that 
the children of black and white servicemen and Filipino mothers are American mestizos. In the original bylaws, it's the children of white people. So it's just it's just so fascinating how it plays out. And it shows us something. It shows us that conceptions of race change over time and they change in faster time frames than we might think. So I'm curious, um, as I'm hearing you talk about this and thinking about um, other challenges that the American military has had with servicemen having uh, children in World War II, for example, and other places, how are the soldiers themselves reacting to this? And, and this is not, of course, the primary topic of your book, but you do talk about some particular um, individuals here and there um, and their kind of experience with their children. How are they responding to having children there and to the ways in which the AGA is defining who's American and who's not and kind of how the um, American policymakers are reacting as well? Sure, sure. Now, there's a couple different cases uh, that come to mind. Um, You... Earlier, you asked about you know what types of records did I use, um, and one of them was the military records. You know, for for better or for worse, the military keeps generally excellent records, and it's a good thing because what happened is you know the whole the whole first of all, I want to take a step back because you have to understand the Philippines was in the War Department, which is quite telling. You know, a lot of people don't know the Department of Defense used to be called the War Department. So this colony was administered in the War Department for like 50 years. Now, the War Department kept excellent records. Uh, everything was made in duplicate, which was very valuable when Manila was essentially destroyed in World War II. So a lot of the records are coming from actually the National Archives, many of them that I use. Um, so I'm looking through military records. So I'm also looking at individual cases of, of, of folks. So a couple cases that come to mind, um, many officers, uh, uh, there's like General Pershing, for example. This is one of the, one of the cases, you know, General Pershing, who uh, very famous general, but a lot of folks don't know that he was in the Philippines for a long time. A lot of folks don't know that a lot of American administrators, they gained their experience in the Philippines. Herbert Hoover. Uh, was in the Philippines for many years. Uh, a lot of future presidents were in the Philippines um, administering it. So this is almost a training ground for bureaucrats and generals. Um, and anyway, so uh, Pershing is uh, one particular case. Uh, you know, he's embarrassed by having these uh, children, allegedly. There's always what happens in the Philippines, if you're asking on the ground, a lot of officers have relations with uh, Filipinas. And they have children out of wedlock. Um, now, the officers, you're as an officer in the American Army at this time, you're supposed to be someone who is upstanding. You're, you're, of course, you're above the enlisted men. Uh, you're supposed to be someone who uh, has morals. And uh, so, for them, this is a kind of almost career-killing move. If you have these children with the natives, as they call them all the time, well. You have been corrupted. And in a very small army, having one notch on your record is means you're not going to become colonel one day or general one day. So they're very concerned with how they look. Now, the enlisted men are very different. And I think the enlisted men are, you know, they come from all different sectors of American society. And I would say that many of them don't abandon their children. Um, 
that's just that that's one of the misnomers that I mentioned earlier of the American Guardian Association. They think every mestizo is abandoned, but I found just as many cases, in fact, more cases of servicemen living in the Philippines. Uh, black servicemen uh, stay in the Philippines. White servicemen stay in the Philippines, and they raise their families. They're not embarrassed to have these mixed racial children. They're not embarrassed to have Filipino wives. Um, it's just the American administration that's embarrassed that this is taking place. So in the Philippines, you have um, a lot of, you know, this is called going native. The, this is what the administration calls, they call these people, they've gone native. Um, what are the backgrounds of these Americans? They're usually poor Americans uh, from different regions of the United States. A lot of them don't have opportunities uh, to, you know, they, they see the Philippines as a great commercial opportunity. And a lot of them stay. So, you know, think about if the army just said, you know what, you can leave the army, but, uh, you know, you can just kind of hang out in, uh, let's just take, Let's just take present day, right? Present day Iraq, Afghanistan. What if the army said, you know what, Jim or John, your, your term of service is up. Um, you want to you want to stay in Afghanistan? And just live here. Like that's what they actually offer these soldiers in the Philippines. Um, and many of them take up that offer. So you have these kind of itinerant Americans uh, going across the islands, um, working in commerce. Uh, many of them have farms. Uh, some are successful. Some are uh, not successful. Some are destitute. Uh, some are involved in local politics. Uh, so they view the American mestizos uh, very differently. I don't think they view them actually as something as racially different from everyone else. They view them as Filipinos. I, I, I suspect so. Now, no one has out outright said that because they don't – all I can say is they, the Americans never referenced their children as American mestizos. They always reference them as my children. Um, but what's clear is that they're being raised as Filipinos. They don't eat hamburgers. They don't eat steaks. They eat rice. They eat, um, they eat the Philippine cuisine um, of the time. They go to Philippine schools. Now, in some cases, there are racially segregated schools. But in most cases, they're going to Filipino schools. They're learning Filipino languages. So on the ground... It's very different than what the AGA thinks is happening. And the AGA looks down upon these servicemen who live in the Philippines. They're an embarrassment to the race as far as they're concerned. Mm -hmm. So what about someone like Pershing? He's denying his uh, or, or he's potentially embarrassed. So what happens with his alleged children? Sure. Well, Pershing is the type that I described earlier that, you know, he's rising up in the ranks. He doesn't want an affair with a woman and a child born out of wedlock to impact his career. And, and that is almost what's going to happen. Uh, this goes up, you know, these accusations go up the ranks and Pershing is very proactive. I mean, he goes on the offensive and according to Filipinos pays a bunch of people off. According to Filipinos goes to witnesses and says that if you testify a certain way, you will be compensated. So, you know, I really can't speak to whether that happened or not, but it shows the, 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 how this American Mestizo issue, even, even the slight hint that you might have had a relationship and children uh, with a Filipina, um, how that might impact a person's political career. Because 
yeah, he is a soldier, but he is a politician. Um, you don't become a general without being a politician too. Uh, so for Pershing, now he's someone of means. Right? He can, for better or for worse, he has the ability to pay people off, allegedly. Uh, the same thing happens with lots of other officers, and they get court-martialed. So this is what's at stake for Pershing, getting court-martialed and not being in the army anymore. Um, he doesn't want that. So he, being that it's his life, he wants to stop that. Other officers, like uh, there's this uh, gentleman named Lieutenant Burbank, right? He he attempts to do something similar. He wants to cover up the fact that he had a child with a Filipina, but he doesn't realize like he he buys into the stereotype that all Filipinos are idiots, they're all poor, they're all stupid. He doesn't realize there's lots of people who are you know trained in Europe. There's lots of people who are educated, um, so. He tries to leave the Philippines and abandon uh, one of his children, and the mother follows him to the United States and sues him. And this leads to essentially his court-martial. He says, no, 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 it's all a lie. This never happened. Essentially the same thing that Pershing says. No, 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 it's all a lie. This never happened. But Burbank's not Pershing. So Burbank ends up court-martialed for doing this exact same thing. Um, so – it's really interesting how the American Bacizos plays into the politics of the time and the individual cases of a soldier. It just shows there's a lot of possibilities of what can happen. Um, but yeah, I, I'm always, I'm just I was just really fascinated by the fact that the the concept of the American Mestizo made people do certain things. Like it's like you know it's it's like it's almost like an ephemeral and a, it, it's a What's the term I'm looking for? It, it's like it, it's like a I, 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 Christine. I don't know the appropriate term, but it's an existential threat. That's what I'm looking for. The American Bastillos for many are an existential thing, and it makes people make certain decisions. Okay. So one of the things you do really well that's extremely difficult as a historian is you're not just tracing these policymakers and um, the military and the soldiers for whom there are perhaps more records or these court records where they're making extremely clear, uh, at least on the officer level, how they feel um, about these children. But you also talk about the children themselves and their self-identity, which can can be difficult to do. Um, you know, you've already talked a little bit about how some – of the children who are being raised by perhaps the enlisted men are being raised as Filipinos. Um, so I wanted if you could wanted you to talk just a little bit about that self identity, both what it was and how exactly you go about you know figuring that out. Since I mean, certainly sometimes we do, but a lot of people don't uh, leave clear records about how they sit around and think about themselves. Oh, absolutely. That's that's a great problem that I encounter in this book. Um, how do you study a group that doesn't self-identify as a group that everyone says they are? Everyone says you're an American mestizo. The American mestizos don't see themselves that way. What I've found, and this is just based on you have to, you know, you you have to look at not the records of what people say, but the evidence of how people live. When I looked at that evidence, it was very clear. These American mestizos, well, some of them didn't even learn English. These American mestizos, 
they live in these large Filipina-led extended families. They did not say, no, I'm an American. I need special privileges. They did not want American citizenship because they were Filipino citizens and their lot and their future was in the Philippines. So, for example, when I'm looking at these uh, these people and how they self-identify, uh, I, I just have to look at what these people do because they're not going to say, I'm an American mestizo. Many of them say, I'm Filipino outright, um, but I'm Filipino, but my father was American. Like they identify as Filipino. There are a few, I would say, that do the evidence suggests that they think of themselves as racially distinct as from the Filipinos. Like, for example, there's a group of um, upper class women. And uh, this is actually from a colleague of mine studying a very similar topic, uh, Tessa Winkleman. She's at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Um, she studies uh, at least one aspect of her study. She looked at some of these upper class, uh, what would be called American mestizos. And it seems that they had their own organization, um, you know, based upon the fact that they had American fathers. Now, in most cases, though, uh, it seems that there's nothing to suggest that they're different from the Filipinos because there's no traditions that emerge. And I say that because... I'm basing this on my study of the Spanish mestizos and the Chinese mestizos who are much more numerous in the Philippines than either the Spanish mestizos and the American mestizos. The Chinese mestizos, they have their own clothing. They have their own food ways. They have their own churches. They have their own clubs. None of this exists for the American mestizos. So nothing really coalesces around that identity. So every time I looked and looked you know, um, the evidence just suggested that it cut one way. These people were Filipinos. I, I, uh, it is to a certain extent, you just have to use your empathy and common sense and knowledge of people. Well, look, if you live in the Philippines and you're raised by F Filipinos who you, uh, according to their culture and their values, then why would you see yourself any differently? And what would be the advantage of seeing yourself any differently anyway, when in this nation of millions of Filipinos, there's only 8,000 Americans, and that number is dwindling, dwindling by the time of World War II. So thinking about doing a kind of, this kind of research project about a group that doesn't form a cohesive racial identity, or at least not a separate cohesive racial identity, I mean, your book in a lot of ways is about race, right? The title, of course, is The Malleability of Race. Um, so what does doing that kind of research tell us for people who are interested in thinking about the history of race and his, uh, racial definitions, considering, of course, usually historians are talking about groups that have formed particular racial identities. What does this kind of um, non-cohesive group tell us and, and how does it change our perceptions about that concept? I think that particular aspect is the most important part of this book because I see the American Mysteries as a case study of how race works. Now, when we when we look at, we're all familiar as historians, or, or if, if folks who are listening aren't historians, that you know the written record is biased towards people who can write. And I would say, for those who study race, 
there's a certain bias to racial groups that have already formed. But what about the ones that haven't formed? What about the ones that were in the process of forming but never coalesced? Where are those studies? And what can that tell us about the groups that form? And this isn't just applied to the American Mestizos or the Philippines or the Filipinos. Think about all the groups that have emerged just in the 20th century. In the census, you have a group that emerges called the Asians. Right? What are the circumstances of that emergence and what groups did what other possibilities were there? You know, we have so many different iterations of of uh, of blackness in the 20th century. The mulatto category isn't a census category anymore, but it was in the past. So we have so many just in, in studies, right? We have lots of studies on the groups now called the Asians, the groups now called the African-Americans, the groups now called the uh, insert group here. But what about how these groups have changed over time? Because it's very clear the group Asian has not been the same in 1920 and it means something different in 1960 and it means something different in 2018. I think the group of African-American probably cuts the same way. I think the group of white cuts the same way. But in many ways, studies are so are simplistic. The whites are the whites over time. The blacks are the blacks over time. The Asians are the Asians over time. What are the implications of if we understand and go into our studies with, hey, maybe this group in the 1920s of, I'll just go back to the American Mestizos. Maybe the American Mestizos in the 1920s, that's not the same. That doesn't mean the same thing in the 1950s. I think that's what really came out of this study that I was excited about and that I think has larger theoretical implications. Just the fact and coming into a study, understanding from the very beginning that groups are not the same over time. Groups cannot be transposed over time. And groups... Furthermore, cannot be transposed over different times and different spaces. The study makes that clear. So larger theoretical implications, yeah, it complicates the way we write history. But I think this book shows it can be written that way. And it can be written in a readable way. Yeah, and your book is very readable, even though you're uh, tackling a lot of these very big theoretical issues. Um, from that answer, even though this is a smaller question, I did want to ask um, one more kind of source-related question. In particular, you do use the census. Um, and since you just mentioned kind of the importance of that changing census category, I was wondering if you might talk just a little bit about um, how you use the census and what it offers, but also what it doesn't offer. The census is such a great raw material tool. That no, whatever, however it's constructed, it's such a great informational tool. The drawback is it's made by people, and people have biases. People have conceptions of what a census should count, what's important to count. So, in terms of the census, over time, the American Mestizos, they were not a category initially, they became a category in the 1920s. And then when the Filipinos took over the census, all of a sudden there were no mestizos anymore. That's telling. Whoever writes the census 
has a certain thought of what is important and who is important to count and what category to put those people in. So now the key, at least for me, and I studied about four different censuses in the Philippines, and the numbers were there, but they were said in different ways. I think that was the issue. Like, for example, um, in one of the earlier censuses, they straight up had a mestizo category, and they explained how they defined that category. Move two censuses later, which is probably 30 years later, and they just have a general mixed race category, or they don't even have the, that category. What they have is a category of foreigners who are fathers. And who have children in the Philippines, i.e., if you look at the Americans who are the foreigners, you would understand those who have children are probably American mestizos. So the raw data is a boon to historians. Um, you just have to be careful because any historian worth their weight in salt understands that if you're reading a document and taking it at face value, and you don't try to do your research and read between the lines, then you're just tying your own hands. So, yeah, rec these censuses were just so fascinating to read. Um, but the interpretation, that's up to uh, the skilled historian to distill that information. Okay, well, thank you so much. We've taken a lot of your time. Um, could you tell us what you're working on now? There's a couple projects I'm working on. Um, not all are related to the American Mestizos. Uh, one that is a, is a kind of an outgrowth of this work is I am working on a project on the Philippines in World War II, uh, focused on the Philippines. Uh, that came up in a lot of my research, and uh, that book proposal was accepted by press. Um, so I'll be working on that at some point um, in the near future. I'm just in the research stages. Uh, but really, one of my focuses is also – uh, you asked me at the very beginning of this interview, you know, how'd you get interested in being a historian? Well, one of the things I did uh, is an undergraduate was writing a uh, thesis on American military technology and how it's remembered um, and how it's remembered in popular culture and how the memory uh, impacts people's views of the reality. Um, so in a way, it's very much like this American Mestizos book, because I view this book as a book of ideas. This is a case study of ideas. And, and that's a project that I've really started to focus on again, uh, studying the cultural memory of World War II military technology. Um, so, so that's another project that I hope to move forward with. Um, you know, this is in addition to my regular, um, you know, interest. One of, one of my interests, uh, uh, being at community college of Philadelphia was being a better teacher. And I'm always doing things to do that. And one of my interests is trying to better working conditions for um, all the folks who work at my institution and for, um, you know, folks who are scholars in general, because, you know, I, I don't want to kind of change the topic a little bit. But since you asked me what I'm working on, um, you know, our, our field, although this has been such a great, you know, doing scholarship is great and uh, doing this podcast has been great. And I thank you for reaching out to me to do that. Um, there's some structural issues in our field um, that are problematic, and they're not going away. The fact that 70% of our profession is contingent, I mean, there's things as historians, we're scholars too, but we're workers. And I think we need to work towards that too. So that's one of my interests too, and 
how that materializes, I don't know. Um, it certainly is something I'm interested in doing more of. And do you have any particular um, activities that you're doing right now, or you're just um, thinking about it and working on how to move forward with that interest? No, no, there's lots of lots of activities that I'm involved in, uh, particularly, um, particularly uh, with, you know, with my union. Um, and there's a lot of bad things happening in higher education. At some point, I'll tell you about them, Christine, but not on this <laughs> That podcast. sounds right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm very much involved because, you know, one of the things that I didn't really mention earlier in the interview is I am a first-generation college student from a working-class family, and that very much influences how I think about the research I do. I'm very interested in the reading about the people and writing about these people. That's why I try – even though the documents weren't there for the American Mystics, I knew I had to give them a voice, and that's what I tried to do. So. Well, that sounds great, and you did a wonderful job um, giving them a voice. So thank you so much for coming on and telling us a little bit about the book. Oh, thanks for having me, Christine. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.